0: Hello and welcome to Maverick Messages. My name is Aaron. I'm a freshman at Providence Baptist College. If you're ready to be inspired and to change your life for the better, take a listen. First Peter, First Peter chapter 4, and uh, we'll be talking about an issue that obviously probably has a lot of people thinking the same thing, especially with uh, current events, with, um, in Israel. Moss and that terrorist attack there in Israel and the, the war taking place now. Um, you can't help but think that, man, this this is a sign of the time. It's a sign of the time. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll read verses 1 through 11. It says this, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise in the same mind, for he that suffereth in the flesh hath ceased from sins. I like what Peter's doing here. He's He's battling against Gnosticism. It's this idea that Jesus Christ was a disembodied spirit, and he didn't really come in the flesh, and uh, he he wasn't physically crucified. And I love what he says here. For as much as then Christ has suffered for us, how? In the flesh. There it is. He's battling that heresy there. Verse number two, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life, may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riots, speaking evil of you. I hope that's exactly what's happening in the workplace. I hope, It's kind of a funny thing to wish for upon fellow Christians, but I wish the world would speak bad things of you. I wish they would. I wish they would. Why? You can see it in that uh, beginning of that verse where they think it's strange. Yeah, they do think it's strange sometimes, don't they? You're a little oddball, weirdo. What's wrong with you? What makes you different? That you run not with them to the same excess of riot. You know, you're not going to go down that road. You're not going to party with them. You're not going to engage in that kind of conversation. You're not going to entertain those kind of uh, jokes. And what's the result of that? What's the natural result? This lost world will speak evil of you. It happens, and it should happen in the workplace. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Their judgment day is coming. Verse number six, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. You're not going to get around it. You're going to be judged by men in the flesh. They're going to judge you, but you've got to stand before your almighty God one day. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer, and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the of the ability which God giveth that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Christ's return is imminent. Christ's return is at hand. We can see it in verse uh, number 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Things that are at hand are readily accessible. They're, they're at just in arm's reach. And we can see in several passages of Scripture where Christ's return is at hand. In James, just turn over with me to James, one book of the Bible over, just a few pages, really James chapter 5 and verse 8 and 9. It says this, be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, uh, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Jesus Christ is standing before the portals of heaven." And at any moment, he could turn the doorknob of heaven and walk in and return again on the world scene. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and verses 3 and 4, it says this, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. We see that the lost world will scoff at the return of Jesus Christ. And worldly Christians will scoff at the return of Jesus Christ, doubting his return But when we look at verses 9 to 11, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. God has promised to return. He said, Behold, I come quickly. And He is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. But here's the key. What's keeping the Lord from returning? But it's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be? In all holy conversation and godliness, what manner of persons ought ye to be? And ultimately, that's the question that I want to pose this morning. How am I supposed to live in these last days? God's uh, return is quickly approaching. We can see the signs of the times. I mentioned uh, that issue with Israel and Hamas. And in lieu of a political update today, uh, i just talk about that briefly. Uh, Hamas, a avowed enemy of Israel, a terrorist organization, uh, Palestinian people that are not really an ethnic people. They don't have any claim to that land, yet they live there. Of the grace of the state of Israel, it's Israel's land. It's by their grace that they even exist, and they live there. Uh, but they decided to, uh, to attack Israel. I don't know if you've heard any specifics, but we're talking about entire towns being wiped out. We're talking about men. We're talking about women. We're talking about children decapitated. We're talking about elderly shot dead at a bus stop. Um, I was talking with uh, Brother Richard Way. Uh, his dad, Brother Gary Way, uh, often goes to Israel. And when he ministers there in Israel, he's within a few clicks of the border there with Gaza. And I talked with Brother Richard and asked him, hey, how is his dad doing? Does he know anything about Israel? You know, what's going on over there? He's like, yeah, he knows people that are missing. Uh, Probably some of his friends from Israel are dead or uh, they're hostages there in Gaza. And it's a tremendous thing. And, of course, the Bible talks about wars and rumors of wars. And uh, this is just part of that, uh, the earth rumbling and uh, aching for Christ's return. Uh, Other things, other signs of the time, uh, more positive news uh, there in Jerusalem. They're uh, currently unearthing more of the pool of Siloam. Uh, this is a recent event. I mean we're talking currently, this is just last couple of months, they started uh, publicly unearthing the rest of the pool of Siloam. Uh, if you understand what the pool of Siloam is, it's, it's a pool that uh, a, a tunnel ran into. Hezekiah's tunnel brought fresh water into the city limits there of Jerusalem. And the pool of Siloam was the basin that collected that water, and it was for the ritual purifying of the Jews. Uh, The Jews would come to this uh, pool. It's at the uh, lower end of the hill of Jerusalem in the city of David. And they would wash themselves before they would go to the temple. And they would uh, walk this long pathway, these steps leading up uh, to the Temple Mount area. And to me, that's just a sign of the time. They're unearthing the Pool of Sloan. Their archaeological dig is happening right now. Uh, Those steps that lead up to the Temple Mount, they're unearthing those as well course, with the destruction of Jerusalem, rubble has been placed on those steps. People have built houses above those locations, but they're shoring up those houses, putting I-beams underneath there, and they're creating a path that people one day can take from the Pool of Siloam up to the Temple Mount. During the Tribulation, we read in the book of Daniel that there will be a temple. There will be a temple. But if you're going to have a temple, then guess what you need? You need a Pool of Siloam. You need steps that will lead you from the Pool of Siloam up to the Temple Mount. What we're experiencing right now, this archaeological dig, is simply a sign of the time. We're getting a pool of We're getting steps to the Temple Mount. One day, we're going to have a temple on that Temple Mount, and that's just another sign of the time. How am I supposed to live in these last days? all It's obviously all adding. It's all coming to a head. How am I supposed to live in these last days? Wars and rumors of wars. Many people would be tempted uh, to sell their home, remo- move to a re- remote location, build a bunker, stockpile food, buy weapons and ammunition. And... I I agree to the last part right there. Buy weapon's and ammunition regardless. Regardless, amen, America. But as a Christian, how am I supposed to live? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Am I supposed to cease normal life existence and preparation? Am I going to be a prepper one day to prepare for the end? The end is near. Well, just look back at history. Look back at history. Are we the only ones who think that the end is near? Had there been Christians down through the ages who have thought that the end is near? Signs of the times, there they are. Jesus could come back today. They weren't wrong. Jesus couldn't come back that day. Can you imagine what it was like to be a believer in Rome under the emperor Caligula or Nero or Domitian to face the arena, the stake, or the lion's den for your faith? The kind of things that you read about in the book of Revelation, people being martyred, for their faith. Surely they thought the end is near. Yet they were faithful. They didn't dig a bunker, they didn't stockpile food, they endured, they witnessed, they lived their Christian lives. What do you suppose Christians were thinking when the legions captured Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in AD 70? Or when Attila the Hun overran Europe in the 5th century, the Vikings overrunning Europe in the 9th. Genghis Khan in the 13th, or the Muslim Turks in the 16th century. The end is near. Wars and rumors of wars. Might anyone have concluded that the end was near when the Black Death decimated Christendom? And you know, we experienced COVID, right? Which is just a little bit uh, of what the Black Death would have been. And when Christians were thinking, man, the end is near. It's a sign of the time. I agree. It probably is a sign of the time. But what were Christians thinking about a long time ago in Europe when millions and entire portion of the population of of Europe was decimated. How did the situation look to believers at the beginning of last century when the First World War, the so-called Great War, destroyed uh, the entire entire generation? 37 million casualties because of that war. Surely Christians back then thought, the end is near. It's a sign of the time. Did they dig a bunker? Did they stockpile food? Did they buy ammunition and, and weapons? Or maybe just a couple decades later, Hitler, I think, a personification of who the Antichrist will be uh, and the Third Reich. Clearly, the early 21st century has had no monopoly on death, disaster, devastation, and terror. And what we need to understand as Christians, there is a biblical way that's prescribed to us, the way we should live in the last days. Forget it, Brother Holberg, it's the last days. Let's just sit down, and let's hold on tight, and let's just get through the end. No. No. Of course, the theme of our school is... Occupy till he comes, not sit in a bunker till he comes, not just uh, wait it out till he comes, but occupy, be busy until he comes. And Christians need to be busy about the work of God as well. The imminence of the return of Jesus Christ in our text in first Peter, chapter four, we see what we're supposed to do until he comes. But the end of all things, verse number seven, but the end of all things is at hand. And here, here we go. Be ye therefore sober. Be ye therefore sober. First of all, be sober. Be sober. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6-8 says, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and that they be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Titus two twelve says this, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The word sober means to not be under the influence, not under the influence. Uh, When this comes to alcohol, obviously that's what I think of when I think of the word sober and not being under the influence or being under the influence of something. Uh, When it comes to alcohol, being under the influence means the blurring of the vision or judgment, a lack of coordination, the slowing of breathing and heart rate the loss of balance, the start of drowsiness. Isn't that a diagnosis of modern Christianity today? Isn't it a blurring of the vision, a blurring of the judgment? Where there is no vision, the people perish. As Christians, we should have a crystal clear vision of what God would have us to do, not just to operate in our own lives, but to affect the lives of others, having a vision uh, for ourselves, having a vision for the ministry that God would give us, having a vision for the ministry that God has given us presently right here, having a vision for that bus route, having a vision for that bus kid, having a vision uh, for uh, a class that you're taking, having a vision uh, for what God would have for you in your life. Maybe it's a lack of coordination, a lack of coordination, that's, that's a sign of drunkenness, of not being sober. Uh, as Christians, we should be coordinated where the right hand knows what the left hand is doing. We're all parts of the body of Christ. We're all different members of the body of the Christ where we coordinate with one another, where we're sober, where we're aware of what that Christian is doing, where we're aware of that Christian is doing, and we work in concert with each other. It's one of the beauties of a bus route. One of the beauties where you have a bus captain, you have a hierarchical leadership there where he gives the commands, he sets the program, and then every person has their job. And everybody can key off each other. If somebody uh, if something happens in another person's area, you can come in and pitch in and help out. There's coordination. As Christians, we should be coordinate uh, and uh, working together for the cause of Christ. We also see, we talked about this, the slowing of breathing and heart rate, this lack of metabolism, just getting slow, getting sluggish, not moving as fast as we once did. That happens with age, naturally. But as Christians, we don't need to get sluggish. We need to keep the heart rate up. We need to keep the breathing up. We need to keep the pace up. A loss of balance. A loss of balance. That's what a drunk person experiences. How often does a Christian in their life become unbalanced? And they get focused on one pet idea, one pet project, one pet uh, concept. And they do that at the expense of everything else. You can get so focused on eschatology, study of the end times, that you forget that you actually live over here in the present day where there are people who are lost, who are going to go to hell one day, who are going to miss the rapture. Why don't we get off of this eschatology as much and balance it out with a little bit of soul winning as well? Of course, there's always a balance between all of these things. We need to be balanced in our Christian lives. And we see the start of drowsiness, getting a little tired, getting a little sleepy. Getting a little comfortable, sitting down just a little bit, putting our feet up. No, that's not what a Christian should be. A Christian should be sober. And what are we under the influence of in our lives? What, what could we be possibly under the influence of? Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's wealth. Wealth can be intoxicating. Wealth can be intoxicating. There's people that live uh, a totally different life than you and I live. Uh, they live in, in, in an area of wealth. They live in, in a, a, a life of comfortability. And they don't see the need for God. They don't see the need. They don't, nothing's urgent to them. They've got everything covered. Uh, was, uh, was heard about this one guy who uh, had this trust fund. And he's, he's been married uh, for 10 years. And he's known this gal. You know, he's been his girlfriend five years before that. So they've known each other for 15 years. And now they're married for 10 years. And he's, uh, he was asking a financial advisor so when do you think I should tell my wife about my trust fund? Yeah, I get an income of $25,000 a month for my trust fund. What do you think I should tell, uh, tell her about that? You know, she's like, what do you do for a living? Oh, I work, I, I sit on some boards, you know, some corporations. Oh, okay, is that all? Uh, he gets $25,000 a month. Uh, those kind of people live totally different lives than we do, and they don't see the need for anything. They don't, he didn't need to work yet. He did just for fun. Uh, and, uh, but as a Christian we too can get enamored with wealth. We can become intoxicated with the desire for wealth rather than giving. Maybe it's under the influence of fame, seeking for recognition, seeking for, uh, for uh, the uh, applause of man rather than service. Maybe we become intoxicated under the influence of appearance, what we look like on the outside. That's, a, that's We're all guilty of that rather than what God knows us to be on the inward. Uh, personal ambition, Man, we get drunk. We get uh, uh, under the influence of uh, this personal ambition. This is what I want to do. This are my plans for my life. This is what I would like to do rather than what God's direction for my life would be. We can come under the intoxicating uh, influence of pride in our lives, lifting up ourselves, uh, doing what we would have ourselves to do rather than humbly submitting ourselves to God. You have to understand we will always be under the influence of something. Ephesians 5.18 says this, and be not drunk with wine. There's that being drunk with wine, wherein is success, but be filled with the spirit. If we are not spirit filled and under his influence, we will be under the influence of someone or something else. Be the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober. We don't have time to waste. We don't have time to sit around. We don't have time to uh, be lazy. We don't have time to put our feet up. It's time to get to work. It's time to be sober in our Christian lives and understand what is happening all around us. Next, we see in verse number seven, be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Watch unto prayer. What should we be watching for? Matthew 24, 42 says this, watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. We should always be watching for Christ's return. But beside the watching for Christ's return, we should always be constantly in prayer. Matthew 26, 41 says this, watch And pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Wake up every morning looking for the return of Jesus Christ and praying for the return of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help me today? Lord, you could come today. I need to be sober. I need to be vigilant. I need to have a clear vision. I need to be balanced in my life. Lord, help me do that. And every day of our lives, constantly, honestly, evaluate our ability to resist temptation. We're not often very good at it, but the purpose of watching and prayer is to avoid this temptation. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. question that I have for you this morning, does our prayer life affect the amount of sin in our lives? Does our prayer life affect the amount of sin in our lives? It should. It should. Is your life played with sin? Is there a besetting sin in your life? Something that you just can't seem to kick? Have you prayed? How's your prayer life? I guarantee if you get a prayer life, if you enter into prayer, pray without praying without ceasing, having an attitude of prayer prayer all day long, not just reading your Bible and saying a prayer or reading through your prayer request, but entering into prayer, talking to God, communing with him, letting him talk back to you guarantee i guarantee that sin is gonna be a whole lot easier to get rid of that sin is gonna be a whole lot easier to avoid in your life let us watch and pray because we don't know when the lord is coming back he could come back today and i don't want to be caught in the middle of sin in my life although the things that i would do i don't do now, the things i wouldn't do i do romans 7:19 says this for the good that i would i do not but the evil which i would not that i do Paul was struggling there with his even own sin in his own life. Does the prayer life affect the amount of our sin in lives? Let's watch and pray. Next, we see in verse number eight, another thing that we're supposed to do in light of the end being near. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things. Whoa, underline that right there. That's important. Above all things. Kind of reminds me of Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Here we see another above all. Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Why? For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Number three is love the brethren. Love the brethren. Above all things, this is more important than the other items on the list, I imagine. First Corinthians 13.13 13 gives us a clear picture of this. It says this, now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Charity is greater than faith. Yes, because one day I won't need faith. When I get to heaven, what faith do I need? I see Jesus Christ as he is. Uh, When I uh, get to heaven, uh, what will I need uh, with this hope? Because my hope has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I'm with him for eternity but the greatest of these is charity. Colossians 3, 14, and above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Didn't Jesus Christ tell his disciples, hereby shall men know that you are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Man, it's not your preaching ability. Man, listen, to that guy preach. man, that's a Christian right there. Or maybe it's, your, you know, it's not your separation. Oh, man, look how dedicated they are. And we talked about that before, how men are going to speak evil of you, right? And they should. But that's not how they're going to know you're a Christian, just because you don't engage in the things that they engage in. It's because you have love one for another. Love the brethren. And we can see how it, it describes this love in the end of that verse. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. You know, when you love someone... It, seems just, it just seems that they can do no wrong. Or if, they do, if you do notice the wrong they do, it's only after somebody has to point it out to you, or maybe after repeated uh, offenses that you, have OK, fine, I guess there's a problem. When you love someone, you're just willing to cut them some slack, aren't you? Um, when you don't like somebody, you don't cut them any slack, do you? No. When somebody does, you, know, you, just, you have a preconceived idea, and somebody does wrong, and uh, they have offended you in some way, boom, you're on it. Ah, there it is. See it again? He did it again, man. That guy. Ugh, can't stand him. Oh, there it is again. There's something else now. You know, you're just chalking it up, chalking it up, chalking it up, chalking up. You got a tally going of number of offenses. But when you love somebody, it's like, oh, they didn't mean that. I'm sure I misunderstood. Or, isn't that funny? You know, rather than being offended by something, you think it's funny. Uh, it's just a matter of whether you show love or not. I think that's what we see here. Charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Do we seek for the faults of other Christians? When there is an opportunity for contention, do you push the issue? Or do you try to cover the personal offense with grace? I'm not talking about letting people get away with sin and covering up for other people that sin needs to be exposed, sin needs to be dealt with, but I'm talking about personal offenses, somebody sinning against you. Um, when there is an opportunity for contention, do you push it or do you cover it? Are we spreading the wrongdoing or the wronging or trying to cover for each other? Man, I I hope that you're just not taking somebody's faults and just spreading it around. Oh, man, did you see what this guy did over here? Yeah. And you bring it up again the next week. You bring it up again the next week. Man, can we ever get over the fact that we're not perfect? Can we get over the fact that... We also, all of us are sinners, and we all will do wrong. Rather than constantly spreading it and constantly stirring it up over and over again, Proverbs ten twelve says this: "Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins." You got to stir it up. You're going to try and pacify and cover these things. Proverbs seventeen nine says this: "He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends." You're just going to repeat the wrongdoing going to live it over and again in your heart, or are you going to put it to rest? Are you going to cover the wrongdoing, the offense in your life? Are you going to forgive, or are you just going to stir it up constantly in your mind? James chapter 5 and verse number 20 says this, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. I think this, of course, applies to soul winning, reaching people with the gospel, but I think it also applies to dealing with Christian brethren as well. When you convert a Christian brother, which means there's a change to, to bring them out of something. Maybe there's a Christian brother taken over in a fault. Man, if we can convert a brother from the error of his way, we hide a multitude of sins. The truest act of love. Loving the brethren. It's what we should be doing in the end times. Not digging a bunker. Not selling our house. Selling all of our possessions. Uh, getting a prepper pack getting our, uh, our, bag, our duffel bag ready to go, Having, going to Costco and getting a five-gallon you know, drum of rice and beans and things like that, which you can buy. I've been tempted to buy one of those, but it doesn't look very good. Rather than doing that, it doesn't sound as drastic. It doesn't sound as exciting as doing all of that. But just love your fellow Christians. Love each other. We live in close, close quarters. There's opportunities for contention. There's opportunities for strife. Amen but love the brethren, love the brethren. Take a look at verse number nine. Use hospitality one to another, how? Without grudging, which means, which means it's a tendency for each and every one of us to use hospitality with grudging. Hey, can I borrow this? Uh, Fine, you know, that's that's using hospitality with grudging. Uh, We're supposed to give away. Instead of keeping against, don't hold the grudge against someone who owes you or who takes advantage of you. Give your grudge to God and be willing to give yet again. Hospitality. Learning to be defrauded. It's an art. Learn to be defrauded. Let someone take advantage of you and then let them do it all over again. Be willing to be defrauded. Not holding your grudge. Hospitality giving next we see in verse number 10 as every man hath received the gift even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God we've been given things we've been given talents we've been given time we've been given possessions we've been given money God's blessed us with these things and God has called us commanded us to be good stewards of these things in God's absence while we wait for his return we're supposed to be active. We're supposed to be supposed to be stewards. We're supposed to be taking the resources God has given to us and developing them and growing them and maturing them and bringing them to a point where they can be of great service and use to God Almighty. Uh, when it comes to everything that God has given to us, you can see that every man hath received the gift. Every man. How many people have received a gift? Every. 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 The gift you've received. You might say, "Well, the Hallberg, I'm not that talented." You might say, "Well, the Hallberg, I just don't have that many material possessions. Brother Hallberg, you should see my bank account. I'm sorry, Brother Hallberg. I just don't get it. What gift has God given me? You've got to find it. you got to find it. God's given you a gift. God's given you an ability that God has not given to anybody else. God has given to some the gift of oratory. And while that might be up in front and center, as some get up and teach or preach, uh, others, God has given the ability to sing. Once again, you're on platform. You see that easily, easily diagnosed. Hey, that person can sing. Or it's easily diagnosed the other way. That person cannot sing. Amen. All right. Where's Tanner? I heard Tanner's voice somewhere. Where is he? There he is. Okay, there he is. All right. But God has given every one of us a gift. Maybe it's it's just a, a gift of empathy. Maybe you can sit beside someone and you can empathize with them more than other people can. I try to do my best to empathize, but it's something I struggle with. It's something that I uh, have, you know, it just doesn't come as naturally to me as as it could or maybe even should. But God has given us incredible amounts of gifts. And we've got to search those things out and be a steward of them, taking care of them, maintaining them, making sure that they're put to their proper use at the proper time. And lastly, here we see in verse number 11, if any man speak. So if you're going to talk, if you're going to talk, let him speak as the what? Oracles of God. Wow, that's a million dollar term right there. An oracle of God. What is an oracle? It's a divine response or utterance. When I talk, it should be just as if God's talking. When I'm out there and I'm trying to give the gospel to somebody, guess who I am speaking for? I'm speaking for the creator of the universe, I'm speaking for God Almighty. I'm speaking for Jesus Christ himself. The Holy Spirit, of course, is going to do his work in the hearts of men. But who is speaking? I am. Of course, the word oracle is used throughout the scripture. I won't read these passages of scripture to you, but uh, Acts 7.38 refers to the Mosaic law as an oracle from God. The entire Old Testament in Romans 3.2 is referred to as an oracle. Uh, Substance, all the substance of Christian doctrine. New New Testament, Hebrews 5.12. Uh, utterance of God through Christian teachers. Here we see it in our text. That even Christian teachers themselves should speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. If we're going to teach, if we're going to preach, we need to do it as the oracles of God. But we have to do it according. Let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. Not my ability, but... His ability, not my will, but his will, not my direction, but his direction, not my sermon, but his sermon and everything we do should be according to the ability, which God giveth that God, why, why should this happen? Why should be according to the ability, which God giveth that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom be praise and dominion forever. And ever, Amen. It comes right back to Jesus Christ. We're waiting for His return. It's getting closer. It's getting nearer. And I should live my life a certain way—not the way I want to, not the way that other people are living their lives. I'm not going to dig a bunker. I'm not going to sell all my earthly possessions and uh, buy a whole bunch of food and stockpile it. I'm going to live my life as a Christian, just doing what Christians should do on a daily basis. I don't think anything that I uh, preached on or anything in this passage was really all that shocking. Man, what should we do when we live in these last days? I don't know. The same thing that the disciples did when they thought they were living in the last days. The same thing that other Christians in the first century thought and were doing uh, when they thought it was the last days. The same thing that we Christians were doing in the early 20th century when uh, World War I was happening, World War II was happening, the state of Israel was established. Signs of the time. It's going to be soon. What'd they do? They did this. They were sober. They were watching. They had a vision. They had balance in their lives. They watched and they prayed. They loved the brethren. They had hospitality uh, instead of grudges. Uh, They were good stewards of the things that God had given to them. And they preached and they taught according to his power. Nothing new. Nothing new. Do we live in the last days? I think so. I think so. The imminent return of Jesus Christ. Could happen any moment, at any day. We see the signs of the times. They are certainly there. What do we do, Brother Holberg? Same old stuff. Nothing's changed. The same things that the Christians have been doing for 2,000 years, the same things we should be doing today. And maybe there's some things in our lives that we've let go. Maybe there's some uh, soberness that we just don't have in our Christian life. Obviously, you guys are college students, and college students do college student things. Uh, but, uh, as college students seek to be sober seek to be serious about some things that need some gravity understand the seriousness of the issue you guys do a great job of this you you have fun when it's time to have fun when it's spirit week you guys have a spirit week all right uh, but when it's time to do ministry you guys do ministry you do a great job at that but are you sober are you watching are you is your vision clear are you watching and praying are you praying how's your prayer life how's the sin in your life as, can, does your prayer life drive the sin out of your life, or does your sin drive your prayer life away? That's how it works. That's how it's that's how it's worked for me anyway. When there's sin in my life, guess what I do less of. I pray. And then when I pray more and I get right, guess what goes away? The sin does. You loving the brethren? Is there a grudge? Are you harboring something? Are you spreading abroad, abroad offenses, or are you covering these things? How's your hospitality? Are you a good steward? Are you taking the things that God has given? You? Are you developing them? Are you using them? Are you preaching? Are you teaching? Not according to your ability, but to His. Let's pray, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the day you've given to us. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining today's Maverick message. We hope that you found this to be inspiring and life-changing. Thank you for listening. God bless.